Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 21st, 2023. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I saw uh, Kenneth Branagh's A Haunting in Venice, his latest Hercule Poirot movies, getting a lot of press. One funny piece in the New York Times talked about the many mustaches of Branagh's Hercule Poirot, but there was more to it than just his mustache. It was classic Poirot. The movie, uh, I think, is based on Agatha Christie's uh, 1969 uh, Poirot book, Halloween Party. Uh, I've watched all the Poirot television series. Uh, it's quite remarkable how intimate we all seem to know Hercule Poirot, the uh, uh, Agatha Christie's Belgium detective, uh, the man who was Poirot in, uh, in, in the television series, David Suchet, I think has become almost more Poirot than Poirot himself. One person who knows as much about Poirot as Suchet is my guest today, Sophie Hanna, is a very distinguished uh, writer, detective writer, and somehow she convinced the Agatha Christie Foundation or the family to allow her to write some more Hercule Poirot books. I think she's written five and she has a new one out next week. It's called Hercule Poirot's Silent Night, uh, set in 1939, uh, a Christmas mystery. And uh, Sophie is joining us from Cornwall in a hotel because her dog chewed through her computer thing. So uh, as I said, I'm not sure Poirot would accept that excuse, but there she is. Uh, Sophie, when did you discover Hercule Poirot? I discovered Poirot and Agatha Christie's work when I was 12. My father used to go to secondhand book fairs all the time because he was an avid collector of books about cricket. And he went to this particular book fair and he brought me back a copy the Body in the Library, which is a very good Miss Marple novel by Agatha Christie, because uh, he knew I liked mysteries. So I read The Body in the Library, adored it, got absolutely hooked on Agatha Christie and spent the next two years reading all the Poirot novels, all the Marple novels, all the Agatha Christie I could get my hands on. Um, so yeah, she's been my favourite writer since I was 12. Is there a a family rivalry, do you think, between Marple and Poirot? Can you love them both? I have to admit, Marple doesn't inspire me, and I love Poirot, but uh, it, it, it doesn't have to be either or, does it? Not at all. And I would say most fans of Agatha Christie, certainly most fans I know, do love them both, and certainly love the books that they feature in. Um, and before I was asked to write Poirot stories, as a reader, I certainly loved the Miss Marple books every bit as much as I loved the Poirot books. Um, I probably don't love any of the other characters quite as much as I love Poirot and Marple. I do think they are her two finest creations. But yeah, you can absolutely love both. And I definitely do. I hadn't actually realised before doing a little bit of research for this show, Sophie, that um, Christie's first book or first successful book in 1920, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, featured Poirot. Did that? Do you think gave Christie a particular 
intimacy with Poirot? Um, I mean, she was certainly inextricably linked to him for the whole of her writing career. So, yes, I mean, she sometimes used to express frustration with him as a character. And I believe she said that um, if she'd known that she was going to have to write about him forever and ever for the rest of her writing life, she might have thought a bit more carefully about what kind of character to create. Because when she created him, it was just that one book. She had no no and that she would be writing about him literally until you know until she died um so i think in that sense she would have been quite sort of intimate with him as a character but i i also think that she possibly identified a bit more with miss marple a later mm. career because um miss marple is well female apart from anything else and kind of quiet and understated you know, her brilliance is often not really noticed and she certainly doesn't boast about it, whereas Poirot's very boastful and flamboyant. And I think Agatha Christie's modesty and humility probably makes her a bit more similar to Miss Marple than she is similar to Poirot. Um, but yeah, she, she certainly had a, a fairly strong bond with Poirot because they were together for the whole of her career. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and maybe in the way you put it, that's why I like Poirot more than um, Miss Marple, because Miss Marple's too much like Agatha Christie, a bit too humble. Um, what is it about these Belgium literary characters? I'm just thinking out loud. My, I think my two favorite literary characters are both Belgium, Poirot and Tintin. I mean, it's, a small, it's a small country. How, how did they generate such remarkable literary wealth and depth? I don't know, really. But I mean, they are only, Poirot and Tintin are only two characters. Like, if we were to name all the brilliant characters in in other countries' fiction, there'd probably be lots of those as well. So I don't think it's anything specifically about Belgium. Like, you'd expect a country of guys to generate these two really good characters, wouldn't you? Yeah, when I go to Belgium and you go to Brussels, which is an odd country, which is isn't really a country or a country trying to be a country or a country that kind of acknowledges that it isn't a country and pretending to be one, um, they've embraced Tintin. There's a Tintin museum and lots of Tintin paraphernalia. It doesn't seem as if Poirot is quite as visible in, in Belgium as, uh, as Tintin. Uh, what, what do the Belgians think of Poirot? I think they they have a strong affinity with him and are quite proud to have him as a as a famous Belgian character. Certainly, when uh, when my first Poirot novel was published in 2014, and it was called The Monogram Murders, Belgium was one of a handful of countries in which it was a number one bestseller in their book charts. It was a bestseller in lots of countries. But it was only a number one bestseller, I think, in two or three. And Belgium was certainly one of them. Uh, Sophie, how did you convince the um, the home, so to speak, of uh, of Agatha Christie, the foundation or whoever run her affairs, to, to let you write uh, Poirot novels? Did you pitch them or did they pitch you? Um, I definitely did not pitch them and nor would I ever have done so. I definitely did not convince them and nor would I ever do. Um, but equally, they didn't think to me either because they'd never heard of me. So I would never have approached them. They'd never 
they would never have approached me. And this whole thing only happened because of my literary agent. So I have a literary agent who happened to be in a meeting at HarperCollins, okay, which is Agatha's British publisher. He and he was sitting next to a shelf full of stuff. And it just occurred to him that HarperCollins published Agatha Christie, that I was a big Agatha Christie fan. And so he interrupted the meeting, which was not supposed to be about me or Agatha Christie, completely different subject. He interrupted the meeting and said, hey, you Agatha Christie, he's dead. Why don't you ask my author, Sophie Hannah, to write a new Quarrow novel? She's a big Agatha Christie fan. And HarperCollins at the time said to him, no, 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 the family would never want anyone else writing books starring characters. And then the very next day, the Christie family had a meeting with HarperCollins and Agatha Christie's grandson, Matthew, who at the time was in charge of Agatha Christie Limited, he said to HarperCollins at this meeting, this is going to surprise you after everything we've said for all these years, but we, the family, would like to commission a new book starring one of Agatha's central characters, at which point the HarperCollins team said, huh, that's a coincidence because we had this agent in yesterday and he reckons he's got the perfect author. So then a meeting was arranged and we discussed it. And even at that meeting, I remember saying, look, if you want someone to write a new book starring Agatha's characters, you should go for someone really grand and eminent, like P.D. James or Ruth Rendell, both of whom were baronesses. Obviously, they're both dead now. They were not dead at the time. Otherwise, I wouldn't have suggested them. Um, but we just got talking and, and the family could see how much of a fan of Agatha Christie I was. And, and in the end, you know, they said, well, if we did ask you to do this, what might you do? And I talked a bit about what I might do. And, and they liked the sound of it. And I think what they liked most of all was how seriously I took Agatha Christie and her work. And we decided to go ahead. But it was neither my idea nor theirs. It was my literary agent's idea. Finally, a literary agent has some value. They're usually the most useless people around. Um, we are speaking with Sophie Hanna, the author of Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. Uh, what is it, the fifth book in the series, Sophie? It is, yes. Um, I, I have to apologize also for Sophie's sound. As I said, she's talking to us from a hotel in, in Cornwall, her puppy chewed through her computer cable, but we can hear you, Sophie, you know, um, not that well. What was the challenge for you, most of all, when you when you got this opportunity? It's a remarkable opportunity um, the, well, for, the, both, oh, for both parties. I don't want to uh, underplay you. I mean, you, you, you weren't chopped liver either. You may not have been P.D. James, but you're pre-Poirot, pre you had your own life. Um, <laughs> what what was most daunting about uh, writing Poirot books in a, 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 as a, not as Agatha Christie, but obviously you had to be maybe half Agatha Christie or a quarter Agatha Christie? Um, well, not really, because actually I decided quite early on that I did not want to attempt to mimic the prose style of another writer. I just don't think that ever works. Um, so I decided to create a new narrator character who would be the narrator for my Agatha Christie Poirot novels. And he would inevitably then have a different voice from any narrator that had ever appeared in a Christie novel. And it sort of seemed to make sense. So my narrator is Inspector Edward Catchpool of Scotland Yard. He is Poirot's sidekick. 
for all of my Poirot novels and he narrates every story. And that seemed a sensible approach to me because it's it, it, it was like if people read my Poirot novels and thought this is a slightly different voice or a slightly different way of telling a tale than any of Agatha Christie's books, there was an explanation for that. We've got a new character working with Poirot and talking about what he and Poirot are, are doing. Um, so that was how I approached that. The biggest challenge for me was writing what for me is historical fiction. So when Agatha wrote the books, if she wrote a Poirot novel set in, you know, 1930 or whatever, then then she was there in 1930. It wasn't a historical novel. But for me, as soon as I decided in conjunction with the Christie family and the publishers, that my Poirot novels were all going to be set in that sort of Poirot golden age period. So between 1928 and 1932, basically. As soon as I knew that, I thought, right, um, I'm going to be writing historical novels and I do not have a very um, expert knowledge of history. You know, historical general knowledge is not my strong suit at all. Um, so that was the most challenging part and to prepare myself for it I read I reread all of Agatha Christie's novels from the 20s and 30s to kind of immerse myself in the atmosphere and and writing of that period it was a remarkable or it remains a remarkable period 28 to 32 your book the, the new book is based in 31 mm. uh people it was a tra I mean I, I, maybe this sounds a bit dim-witted but it's a transition period it's not the 20s and it's not the 30s which right. when the 20s became the 30s when when the jazz age became the great depression is that the defining quality of this period well you're asking the wrong person <laughs> well but you you yeah but you you you're you're beginning to be familiar with this period uh, in in the uk and in uh, in, in europe um, I'm, I'm beginning to be familiar with how people spoke and socialised and the parts of that period that present themselves in detective novels. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I haven't really studied the period in order to write these books. I've only studied the Christie novels of the period. But what I found was that that did, to my surprise, I mean, I was not sure it would work, but I showed the first few chapters of my first Poirot novel to various people who had a much more solid sort of basis of historical knowledge than I do. And I said, does this read convincingly like something that might have been written in 19? 1929 which is when the first one was and they said yeah we did not think you'd be able to do it but it does there's a a familiarity to that period and to uh poirot is that one of the things that you're trying to do as a writer is make people feel comfortable the the cliche is wearing an old pair of slippers or something like that or are you trying to wake people up a bit because when people come to these books they're assuming the poirot they know and yeah. it's a slightly different one with a different cast of characters so i guess your goal is both to give them some degree of comfort and familiarity and yet also provide something different absolutely so the comfort and familiarity i was always very clear about this from the very beginning the comfort and familiarity 
comes from Poirot the character who is absolutely Agatha Christie's Poirot. I haven't changed him. I haven't given him a new backstory or a romantic life. He's just absolutely Agatha Christie's Poirot in, in you know, the best I can do at rendering that character. So that's the familiar comforting element. The new and different is the puzzling murder mystery or multiple murder mystery that I create in each case for him to solve. So the story and the rest of the cast of characters is the new and different bit and the the Poirot and the, the sort of type of book he appears in, that's the comforting familiar element. Did you also have the challenge of, of writing away from Suchet and perhaps even Branner? Because of course, when Christie was writing, none of these characters were Hollywood stars or, 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 or television stars. Did you have to force yourself not I'm, I'm assuming you watched all the the series and the movies and everything did you have to force yourself to sort of write against cinema or against television in a way there was no sort of effort involved the I was always clear the Poirot I was writing about was the Poirot in Agatha Christie's novels uh, even though you know in my head Poirot will always be David Suchet. That's what he will always look and sound like. Well, poor old David Suchet. Do you think on his? I don't know if he is. He still alive? Um, of course. Yes, he yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, when he dies, I wonder if poor no, old on his grave. <laughs> but so, but despite that, when I'm writing my Poirot novels, I'm always striving to write about the Poirot I know from Agatha Christie's novels, unmediated by any screen adaptation. What do you think of the the Branner Poirot versus the Suchet Poirot? And it, it, do you have a favourite Poirot on on screen? Um, I think it, I mean it's it's a kind of testament to how great the character of Poirot is that there's so many different ways of playing him. I mean, also there's the Peter Ustinov Poirot. Yeah. In, now, in my head, Poirot doesn't particularly look like Peter Ustinov, but I do think Ustinov did a great job of playing him so um i'm just pleased that people want to play poirot and and reinvent him endlessly and and you know care about the character enough in my head i think because i encountered him first david suchet will always be the poirot in my mind's eye i do think david suchet goes beyond just playing poirot brilliantly i think he almost becomes poirot yeah he, and i think weirdly the same is true of um joan hickson and miss marple and i think it's strange that that what i regard as the two greatest detective characters in crime fiction poirot and marple had particular actors playing them for a long stretch of time who who really did kind of seem to become them and not merely act the parts yeah, there was an interesting piece in The Guardian about uh, asking writers their favorite detective. And of course, you chose Poirot. You, and I'm quoting you, you wrote, I love the way Christie's Poirot combines brilliant intellectual deduction and a deep understanding of the dark side of human nature with a, a strong desire to make life as jolly as possible. Um, and his you said you're interested in his desire to matchmake in the romantic arena. I always assumed that uh, from all the shows I've seen, um, 
that he was a, a romantic figure driven and defined by um, his failed romantic relationships. Is there some truth to that, do you think, about Poirot? Was he brokenhearted? Is that what made him such a great detective? Uh, I don't think so. I don't recall. I mean, he's certainly wise and experienced in in sort of emotional matters. I don't think Agatha ever tells us about any sort of romantic or relationships-based backstory for Poirot. What about the Russian? Oh, yes. True. Um, true, that is there, but, but I'm not sure. About, I've never been entirely convinced by that. I think Poirot is a confirmed bachelor who's had a wealth of emotional experience, but the way I perceive him... He, he's not sort of someone who's had a very active romantic life. Yeah, I mean, when people talk about confirmed bachelors these days, they think he might be gay, which I, I don't think Poirot was ever gay, do you? No, I mean, I certainly haven't... I haven't noticed anything that makes me think that at all. Uh, no, I mean, just like, he's definitely... You can see that he's been through some things and felt deeply on several occasions and has that sort of you know, emotional, accumulation of emotional experience that makes him as wise as he is. Um, but I don't have the sense of him. And I could be completely wrong about this, so it's just my reading of the books. But I don't have the sense of him as someone whose almost sort of main emotional landmarks in his past are, you know, romantic ones. But it's true, there is the Countess who is mentioned in a couple of Agatha's Poirot stories. So... I didn't come away with the sense that she was a hugely significant figure in forming the character that he is in the books. Yeah, I think my daughter thinks otherwise, but what does she know? Um, she could be right, yeah, though. Yeah, that. she could be right. She sometimes is. Um, and in that sense, I guess, one of the things about Poirot is he's taken on all the complexity of worldly experience. He's a man of many layers through his many, many different experiences. And in an odd way, he's the complete reverse of Tintin. They're yeah. the extreme bookends in the human experience, one a boy and one a man. We are, it's a, a lovely conversation. I wish we could have Hercule Poirot here, but we got the next best thing. Uh, Sophie Hanna, the author of a new book. Uh, she's been given the privilege and they have the privilege of having Sophie write the book. She has uh, a new one out uh, called Silent Tonight. I want to talk about that after the break. But before then, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. I'm not sure if they've ever run anything on Poirot. They probably should. It's an excellent publication. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties and then we'll be back to talk with Sophie uh, Hannah about her latest book. It's out next week. Uh, Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller.
And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking uh, with Sophie Hanna. She has a new book out, uh, Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. Uh, Sophie, tell me a little bit about the book. You don't want to give away any of the plot. It's out next week, and I'm sure that um, all Agatha Christie fans, especially Poirot fans, have already ordered it. But give us a, a, a few little hints. Make okay. us excited about the book. Don't tell us who did it, of course. I would never do that. Um, so Poirot is looking forward to a quiet Christmas in London uh, with his friend Edward Catchpool, Inspector Edward Catchpool of Scotland Yard. Uh, they've become friends, having solved four mysteries together so far. Uh, and they're just planning a quiet Christmas in London. And then Catchpool's mother, who is a right character and a bit of a bossy Harridan type, she arrives and says they have to both come with her to Norfolk, spend Christmas in Norfolk because there's a man who's been murdered there and the police can't solve the crime. And Catchpool knows that his mother is delighted to be able to try and force him to spend Christmas with her. So he and Poirot go to the Norfolk coast. They have to stay in a, in a, a mansion, basically, that is in danger of falling into the sea at any moment because the coast, the coastline is being eroded by the water a little bit more every day. So everyone in this house for Christmas, there's this kind of big unhappy family and they all know that their house might literally fall into the sea at any point <laughs> during the Christmas holidays or, or shortly after that. Um, and they want Poirot to solve this murder that has taken place in a local hospital because... The head of the household, a chap called Arnold, is due to go to that hospital immediately after Christmas. And his wife, Vivian, is convinced that whoever is the killer on the loose in the hospital is going to try and murder her husband next. Poirot doesn't quite understand why she's convinced of this and she won't explain. Um, but anyway, Catchpool and Poirot's agenda is they have to solve this mystery as soon as possible Otherwise, they will have to stay in the gloomy mansion by the sea and miss their London Christmas. So all the way through the book, there's this suspense of can they solve the crime in time to get back to London for Christmas? And if they can't, poor old Catchpool will have to spend Christmas Day with his awful mother. The clock is ticking. I've always <laughs> been curious uh, in the Suchet series, Poirot lived in a, in a modernist block of flats in London. Where, where do you make Poirot's home in London? Same place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, where was uh, it in London? Was it in West or North London? I don't know. Sort of fairly central, but it's called Whitehaven Mansions and it's a, yeah. an deco block of flats. Is it? But is, is there really a place or is this a literary invention? No, no, I've had my photograph taken outside it. It's so I don't whereabouts know. is it? I always thought it was near Regent's Park, but maybe that's my North London bias. My, my geographical knowledge is not great, so I'm not entirely sure, but I remember it's somewhere fairly central. Yeah, and so that adds to the distinction between this falling down place in um, in Norfolk yeah. and, and Poirot's lovely. And, and he had a delightful, or he has a delightful, um, I don't know what you would call her, helper, secretary, assistant. Miss Lemon. Yeah, does she? She doesn't live with him, does she? No, she doesn't. No. But she she makes sure that he's comfortable, and he has a 
he has a very comfortable place, a very comfortable life in London. Presumably that's because he charged quite large fees for his services. Oh, I would imagine so. I mean, he's the greatest detective in the world, so I'm sure pe people paid him well. Tell me a little bit more about Catchpole. From what I can remember, there he did have a couple of um, friends, uh, detective, uh, British detective friends, associates um, in um, in the novels and in the television series. They weren't parodies of of flat-footed British detectives, but they weren't particularly smart. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, yeah. They well, yeah. I think that's that's fair. Yeah, none of them were anywhere near Poirot's equal. And when I created Catchpole, not only did I want a new narrator to to sort of work with Poirot and write about him, but I also wanted someone who was clever and who was a good detective who would actually benefit from working with Poirot on case after case and being able to learn from him. So I envisage right from book one that the relationship between Poirot and Catchpole would be that of sort of mentor and student. And so readers who've read all the books in the series have noticed that Catchpole is a better and more effective helper and colleague to Poirot in every book because in every book he's learned a bit more through working with Poirot. So in this fifth book, Hercule Poirot's Silent Night, Catchpole is quite an impressive detective. He's still not as much of a genius as Poirot, obviously, but he's pretty good. Whereas in the first book, The Monogram Murders, he's fairly drippy and doesn't contribute a huge amount. Uh, and that was the trajectory I wanted because I kept reading um, you know, where every time I reread the Poirot and Hastings novel, I would always think it was a bit of a shame that Hastings was lovely though he is. He's just a bit too dim to be able to learn yeah. from working with Poirot. Yeah, Hastings, very likable, but not very smart. So the classic, I guess, uh, nice English uh, detective. I was yeah, confused Hastings the detective with Hastings the town uh, in, in England. <laughs> Yeah. If if Poirot lived in near Regent's Park, which I think he did, just over the park, of course, was the home of another very famous detective, um, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Who had an associate called Watson. Is there a little bit of the Holmes-Watson thing in the Catchpole-Poirot relationship that you developed? I mean, I think only insofar as there's a genius detective with a sidekick. It's quite a familiar trope, isn't it? So, yes, in that sense, I suppose there is. But comparing it, it's not a particularly helpful to comparison between Poirot and Holmes, is it? I mean, Holmes was much more psychotic than Poirot. I don't think that. I mean, other than that they're both very clever and solve mysteries, I don't think there's that much that they have in common. Can you give us any more tantalizing clues about this book without giving everything away? Yes, okay, I can. So so when Catchpole's mother arrives in London and wants Poirot and Catchpole to go to Norfolk to solve the mystery, Catchpole notices that Poirot's kind of looking like he'll probably say no, because he can't take every case that's offered to him. He certainly doesn't want to go to Norfolk and he knows Catchpole doesn't want to spend time with his mother. But Catchpole notices that what wins Poirot over and what changes him from being about to say no to thinking I have to say yes 
is when Catchpole's mother tells Poirot that the man who's been murdered, who's a chap called Stanley Niven, was a very, very happy man. The sort of person who always saw the positive side of everything and was always jolly and made everyone around him feel good. And the minute Poirot hears that detail, something clicks and he wants to go to Norfolk and solve the mystery. But Catchpole is baffled by this. He doesn't understand what it is about Poirot hearing that Stanley Niven was a very happy man. Catchpole can't understand why that makes Poirot think, right, now I'm now I'm interested and I have to go and solve this mystery. And Catchpole keeps wondering about this and asking about it. And it's only quite some way in that he gets the answer to that question. You're you're drawing me in, Sophie. I'm going to have to get the book. Um, and I, I especially didn't read it because I didn't want to give away the end or any of the secrets. One of these very pretentious French literary theorists, I don't remember his name. They all have the same sort of names. They're not very Belgium. Um, had a theory about detective novels and sexual congress suggesting they're similar, which I, I think is probably a bit of an exaggeration. But on the other hand, there is something sort of oddly climactic about the endings of um, of, uh, of the Poirot films, the uh, books, the way in which he gets everyone around and, and announces the criminal and the crime. That's the payoff at the end. I mean, there's nothing sexual about it. It's the payoff of the suspense that, that the book has been stoking up and ramping up since the beginning. You know that you're going to be desperate to know what happened and desperate to know the truth but you know that in a detective novel in a good one anyway you will get the answer at the end and that's that's kind of what you've been waiting for that's what people who love detective fiction love about it but you've got to give your readers a good climax to, so to speak so don't you because you don't want to disappoint them it's got to be memorable you can't let them down is that do you have to write these books back to front in a sense do you be often begin with the climax so each book occurs to me, the first idea I have for each book is either the opening mystery or hook or the solution at the end. And for Hercule Poirot's Silent Night, it was the solution at the end. So I had an idea about why somebody might commit murder. In fact, it, it was two. I, I had an idea for why somebody might commit two murders and how nobody would ever be able to solve it because it would be like it's so obvious when you know it it all makes perfect sense but i knew that i could write a book around that around those motives that nobody would ever guess apart from brilliant hercule poirot so that came first with some of my other poirot novels and some of my other books the first idea i get is the baffling mystery at the beginning and whichever one comes first, mystery or solution, I either have to work forwards or work backwards. But I don't start writing the book until I know that I've got an ending as good as the beginning or a beginning as good as the ending, because otherwise it's a waste of time. Because you're absolutely right. If you've got a super intriguing mystery hook at the beginning, you absolutely, absolutely need an equally kind of wow factor ending and if you've got a wow factor ending you need a really hooky beginning otherwise it's like a seesaw that what's it called in america a teeter-totter that, yeah. does, that doesn't balance properly and and that ruins the book that ruins the structure of the book 
and you need everything in between. Uh, the, the book comes two different covers. We, uh, I like the red cover. for This is the American cover. Uh, the British cover is a little bit more muted, a little bit uh, more mysterious, perhaps, but not quite as colorful. The book's out next week. Um, finally, uh, Sophie, uh, do you have a deal with these guys? Do you have unlimited Poirot books? Just keep on going. Are you going to become the the David Suchet of, of, of writers here? You're going to spend the rest of your life writing Poirot books? Uh, it's actually the opposite scenario. So we we always do a book at a time. We never think beyond the next book. So I never know at this point in the publication process, there's been no discussions, nothing about whether there'll then be another one or not. So we decide once each book is out and some time has elapsed. So I, I, I've no idea. Um, but But I can tell you that the experience of writing these Poirot novels has been a massive inspiration to me, not only for the novels themselves, but I've got at the end of November, I've got my first feature film coming out, which mm. is going to be streaming on Amazon. And it's a murder mystery music. You think of, say, Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, but with 10 catchy songs. That's pretty much the kind of territory we're in. And it's called The Mystery of Mr. E., and all the action takes place in the country home, the former country home of um, a very famous writer who's now dead. Uh, and I would not have had the idea for the plot for the mystery of Mr. E if I hadn't worked with a very famous writer's estate and legacy. Uh, so, you know, if I hadn't written these Poirot novels, this musical that I co-wrote with a friend of mine, Annette Armitage, it would never have existed because it was it completely came out of my work with the Christie novels. And who's going when they start making movies or television shows about your novels? Who's going to play Poirot? Who would you like um, to see play Poirot? Not Suchet. I mean, he can't keep on doing it, right? Well, he he's announced that he's not playing Poirot anymore. Mm. Um, it, I'm happy to say that is not my decision because the copyright of my Poirot novels is not mine so i don't i'm with my other books that aren't poirot so like with this musical the mystery of mr e i was very involved in casting because i've i own it or i part own it um along with the director but with my poirot novels they're the only thing i've ever produced where i don't own any of the copyright so whether whether poirot would be played by david suchet or you know winona Ryder wouldn't be up to me so i would I would just not have an opinion and let everyone else decide. Do you care about that? Um, no, I mean, no, I've, I was very happy to agree to the terms under which I wrote the Poirot novels. And it was very clearly, it was very clear from the start that because Poirot is very much Agatha Christie's character, that Agatha Christie Limited would own the copyright in all the books. And that's as it should be. I was, I was absolutely... Um, fine with that. Uh, so no, I just don't, if there were to be an adaptation, I'd be very happy not to be involved in the decision of who should play Poirot. I guess Poirot now really essentially is public property. He's open source material. Everyone has as much right to him as anyone else. Well, he's not public, he's not public property because he's still, a, he's still very much under copyright as all of Agatha Christie's work is until I think uh, 2046 or something like mm. that. 
um, but he's certainly not my property, so I wouldn't be able to decide who to cast to play him. And if I could decide, I'd probably like choose my son or somebody. I'd probably be so biased. I'd be like, which of my relatives can I get to play Poirot? So it's probably lucky I'm not in charge. <laughs>